This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Jack Cush. I'm here on the convention floor at ACR 2022, Philadelphia. The morning has just begun. I just came out of the year in review, a popular session. So popular, they had an overflow room, which means they must have had 5,000 plus people viewing this thing. Two presenters, a clinical and a basic scientist, Dr. Carol Langford from the, clinical, the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. John Varger from the University of Michigan did a stellar job. Carol put uh, out the call for what was the highlights of this year as far as the year in review, the best stuff in the clinical sciences. She had a few. One, the Gloria trial, a pragmatic study of steroid use in uh, RA patients over the age of 65. Second was, as you would expect, the oral surveillance study, tofacitinib versus a TNF inhibitor and its safety woes. The mirror study she highlighted, which is the methotrexate being added on top of peglodicase in refractory and difficult to treat gout patients. And then, of course, the new indication of something we've been using for many years, the FDA approved this year, the IVIG uh, approach to treating uh, patients with dermatomyositis. Again, we've done it for years, but now we have an FDA indication. We presented that, that data last year at this meeting. Uh, the other big thing, it's in press, is the CART T-cell um, directed therapy at CD19 or, C or B cells. Uh, a great paper from Georg Schett showing how you could take train wreck refractory SLE patients who failed everything and give them these CART T-cells and they all went into remission off of their biologics. Um, next was, um, was she closed with uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, something that we should be considering in our patients who are immunosuppressed, especially those on rituximab, uh, as a way of uh, keeping them safe, even here at the tail end of the rituximab pandemic. She had others. John Varga dealt with the basic science side. He led with, uh, and he also received input from colleagues and and culled what he thought was the most important. A few from him was um, the report of a TLR7, a toll-like receptor 7 variant that leads to a higher susceptibility for lupus. By having this variant in TLR7, you have a gain of function sensitivity to um, uh, nucleic acids, therefore leading to this immunogenic response, more B cells, more plasma, cytoid uh, B cells, et cetera, leading to lupus. It's that, so sort of discovered as a human mutant, but then reproduced via CRISPR technology in animals. Really exciting. Also, the um, increased expression of CD8, CD38 um, in lupus patients was found and also found to be associated with lupus patients with infection. He sort of went um, and just sort of discussed how that happens. Really interesting. Uh, another paper on uh, immune activity in non-lesional lupus skin that's similar to lesional lupus skin, saying that even though the skin isn't involved by looking at it, by seeing a malar rash or a discoid rash, there's a lot going on in the skin of patients with lupus. And then um, lastly, he, he, he had others, but uh, he talked about a vaccination-based approach to and with immunotherapy um, to target uh, pro-fibrotic cells, a way of treating these conditions like scleroderma, ILD, et cetera, where fibrosis is a big problem. A great session, really informative. The year in review, another knockout here at ACR. Tune in for more. 
Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm reporting here from Philadelphia at ACR 2022. It's really lovely to be here in person, first ACR back, uh, see lots of old friends. It's been great. The scientific program started today though, and there's been lots great um, on the poster floor, the virtual poster floor, um, particularly in the rheumatoid arthritis space. I want to tell you a little bit about some work that I've seen evolving over a couple of years, looking at recurrent neural networks and MRIs. And so what does this mean? Well, we can essentially, in broad terms, use artificial intelligence to try and piece together whether a patient has rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis just from the MRIs of their hands. And so this is what's been done by some German investigators, 502 patients, about one third of them seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, one third seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, and then another third psoriatic arthritis. I guess we're always concerned that seronegative rheumatoid arthritis might blend into psoriatic arthritis, but they compared the three groups and tried using unsupervised techniques to try and determine whether the algorithm could, to, could differentiate those three groups. And actually, really, quite pleasingly, the algorithm was able to differentiate seropositive rheumatoid arthritis away from psoriatic arthritis, just based on hands, just as well as it could from seronegative arthritis, seronegative rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And so a few things. Firstly, it could actually tell where on the scan made the difference. And so importantly, we saw enthesitis and soft tissue inflammation that would correlate with tenosynovitis as key differentiators between the rheumatoid arthritis groups and psoriatic arthritis. But you can imagine the implications. Now, I don't want to get too excited, and the performance is definitely not perfect. I don't think this can stand up by itself. But you can imagine this as a triaging tool in situations with our rheumatology workforce shortage the way it is, where we can't get patients to see a rheumatologist as quickly as we'd like. MRI scans may be more accessible in some parts of the world. And then to be able to use an algorithm like this to be able to differentiate patients down different pathways might be enormously powerful. You can also imagine though, in the future as we go along, maybe this as part of an overall assessment may be part of better phenotyping patients in general. We put a lot of labels on patients depending on what we see. Psoriatic arthritis maybe just because they've got a bit of chronic plaque psoriasis, even though we don't, we're not necessarily sure whether that relates to their small joint arthritis. And maybe it's all part of a deeper phenotyping process that we're working towards. There's been a lot else on, at this meeting on better phenotyping. It's been really exciting from that point of view. And so I hope you join us at roomnow.com for plenty more about rheumatoid arthritis and everything else to do with this meeting. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting virtually for RoomNow from ACR 2022. I'm here to you today to talk to you about a poster that was presented uh, on Sunday's poster session by Meng et al. This is poster 1207. It was risk factors for major cardiovascular events in inflammatory arthritis, time-dependent analysis um, of inflammatory burden, DMARDs, NSAIDs, and steroids. Now, you may remember this uh, same group presented a somewhat similar uh, study at ACR 2021, uh, which I've also talked about. That study was one of 200 psoriatic arthritis patients. And in that, they showed that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories appeared to be associated with a decreased uh, cardiovascular um, risk. Uh, so they're back again with another uh, study now. And the background to, to all of this is that we know that in the 
healthy population that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are associated with a small but significant risk of cardiovascular disease. We also know that our inflammatory arthritis uh, conditions are associated with an increased cardiovascular risk. So the concern is that these um, non-steroidal drugs, which are symptomatically helpful for our patients um, and they, they like uh, to take them uh, sometimes, that potentially they could be associated with quite a significant uh, cardiovascular risk um, in our population. So um, in this study, um, the authors have come back with a, with a much bigger study. So 200 patients the last time. This time they have 17,732 participants. They have inflammatory arthritis patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis. It's a retrospective observational population-based study. It's looking at the first uh, MACE in these patients and the role of time-varying CRP and ESR and medications in predicting uh, MACE using multivariable Cox uh, regression. This study um, had a median follow-up of 8.7 uh, years for the participants. There are 1,069 MACE events in the study. And there are a number of um, interesting findings. So in terms of things which decreased um, your risk of cardiovascular um, events, the hazard ratios I'm going to give you here, they're all a little bit variable because there are a number of different models in the study, but mainly we're focusing on the rheumatoid arthritis patients um, and looking at the model that included CRP rather than ESR. Um, so what they found was that metatrexate was associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular events with a hazard ratio of 0.75. Somewhat similarly, both COX-2 inhibitors and uh, non-selective NSAIDs were associated with decreased risk of cardiovascular events with has hazard ratios of 0.77 and 0.79, respectively. They did not find a similar effect for biologic DMARDs or for sulfasalazine. They also found a number of things which increased your risk of cardiovascular disease. And most of these are probably not surprising. So medication-wise, steroids are bad, has a ratio of 1.7. CRP was associated with increased risk, probably as a correlate of disease activity, relatively small hazard ratio of 1.1. And then in terms of traditional risk factors, so lipids, hazard ratio of 5 hypertension has a ratio of 3.7. So they're, they're the big ones. Um, then other typical ones, so male uh, sex has a ratio of 1.4 and diabetes has a ratio of 1.2, so not so big. Uh, disease duration has a ratio of 1.1 and age has a ratio of 1.05, uh, so smaller effects. Overall, my uh, takeaway uh, from this study is that this uh, give some support to the hypothesis that actually we can be a bit more comfortable using NSAIDs in our patients if they have active um, inflammatory disease, that perhaps by reducing that inflammatory disease, um, they do not carry the same burden of cardiovascular risk as they do in uh, people who do not have a systemic inflammatory disease. Um, Please uh, log into Room Now for more updates from ACR 2022 and follow me, uh, Richard P.A. Conway, uh, on Twitter. It's November 11th, 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. This is the Room Now podcast. 
We're on the eve of ACR 2022, ACR Convergence here in Philadelphia. Uh, and we're going to go over a few items from this past week in the news and then preview some of the exciting things that will be happening in the next few days as Room Now covers ACR 22. Let me begin with a study of cannabis use that actually was more prevalent during the pandemic. Can you imagine that? This is actually a study of 78,000 individuals, and they looked at jurisdictions where cannabis was legal and where it wasn't legal. Um, and uh, so there will be illegal. And so there's legal recreational, legal medicinal. I don't want to get into that. But in places where cannabis is legal in the United States, the, the use of it grew significantly during the pandemic compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, interestingly, in non-legal states where it's illegal, it remained the same. So wider avail availability, uh, it looked like marijuana and THC products were getting sort of the same uptake as was alcohol. All those people staying home with not much to do. As you know, alcohol sales also went up during the pandemic. Not sure what that really means, but uh, again, I'm sort of always interested in the cannabis literature because it's so prevalent and widespread, yet there's little known about its true utility and efficacy, but everybody wants it. So give everybody what they want. I guess that's the way of the world these days. A study of almost 46,000 respondents over a 20-year period shows that chronic pain has actually increased in that 20-year period, and they looked at prescription use. And not surprisingly, non-pharmacologic uh, analgesic meds uh, was much higher than the use of opioids for chronic pain, but not for surgical pain and not for cancer pain. The point of this, of course, is that it looks like um, government policies and public health measures to reduce the reliance on opioids seems to have had some effect. And congratulations to all of you who have heeded those warnings. Uh, NHANES, as, a, as you know, is an ongoing survey of, of health habits in the United States. Uh, this particular survey looked at sleep habits amongst U.S. adults over the age of 20. They looked at almost 9,000 individuals, and they found that, uh, what do you think is the average sleep time in the United States? What would be a good amount of hours if you were to get in the right amount of sleep? Well, from this study, it was 7.6 hours on work days and 8.2 hours on your free days or the weekends, I would assume. Um, about a quarter slept less than seven hours, and about a quarter went to bed at midnight or later, shame on you, um, and 30% said that they had trouble sleeping. I often quoted that 40% of the population has sleep disorders, and I think that this data is probably closer to the truth. 30% um, trouble sleeping, with 27% having daytime sleepiness. Sleep is a major problem in rheumatology. If you're a rheumatologist treating musculoskeletal pain and you don't pay attention to sleep, you totally missed the boat. You're misdiagnosing all kinds of things. Sleep is responsible for chronic pain, chronic fatigue, strange numbness, migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, it's a myriad of things that are all rooted in poor sleep. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, sleep apnea or, um, uh, I mean, there's a mirror, again, there's a, a wide range of sleep disorders that need to be addressed. Now, do you want to be the doctor that has to manage that? 
that's sort of the secondary part of this. It's a beating, isn't it? Anyway, it's a reality. We're going to have to deal with it. Uh, as we know, Plaquenil is the miracle drug for lupus. Uh, it's been shown to do everything from lower blood sugar levels and lipid levels and have an anticoagulant effect and promotes better pregnancy outcomes. We do know that it has a significant effect on uh, uh, outcomes in lupus patients, including mortality. This is a meta-analysis of 21 studies, 26,000 patients, showing that SLE significantly lowers mortality risk by 54%. Um, it was also uh, uh, capable of lowering mortality risk in lupus patients with renal disease by 57%, and patients with lupus patients with cardiopulmonary disease by 63%. Again, it, why is your patient with lupus not taking Plaquenil? I don't think you have a good reason. Uh, another interesting study was a cluster analysis of only 112 patients, but they were specifically looking at what kind of patients had erosive arthritis with lupus. Uh, and what they did see that arthritis and arthralgia is quite common. Arthritis was seen in 27% um, in arthralgia and 73%. Erosive arthritis in 26%. Cluster analysis showed that erosive disease in lupus was, was uh, uh, more commonly associated with CNS manifestations, serositis, positive tests for ACPA, um, CARP antibodies, SM, RMP, and DICOF-1. Interesting analysis. Joseph Smolin did that kind of cluster analysis on lupus patients, oh my goodness, over 20 years ago, showing really how, uh, how different syndromes or different presentations of lupus do cluster. It, it, it is true. I think it's worth um, finding that paper and reviewing it again. A lot of things this week on COVID that are worth noting. Um, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for the use of anakinra, also known as kinaret, to treat hospitalized uh, COVID patients who are test positive, hospital hospitalized who have pneumonia and are requiring supplemental oxygen, um, or they're felt to be at high risk for respiratory uh, failure and other severe pulmonary outcomes with lupus. So an EUA for anakinra now joining tocilizumab. The New York Times re uh, um, reported on an article that's in preprint phase talking about the benefits of Paxlovid um, and those individuals, this is a large population-based study, showed that individuals who had Paxlovid within five days of having a positive COVID test had a significantly lower risk of having long COVID symptoms. Interesting. Um, and it lowered the risk by 26%. This was an EMR study of COVID patients with um, risk factors for severe infection, 9,000 received Paxlovid, um, I guess 45,000 did not. And again, long COVID symptoms were symptoms of COVID lasting beyond 90 days uh, from their infection. Uh, another bit, uh, 12 patients reported with IgA uh, positive co vasculitis post-COVID vaccination. Um, these were Males and females age 52, um, 10 of the 12 had mRNA vaccines. The time from the vaccination to the onset of IgA vasculitis, that would be a henoch line palpable purpura kind of vasculitis, was 11.5 days. Um, um, 
two-thirds of them had the vasculitis after the first dose, the other third after the second dose. They all had skin involvement. Seven of the 12 had joint involvement, four GI, two renal. They were all treated with um, steroids. Is this real? Is this really a syndrome? Again, a wider range, array of strange symptoms happening post-COVID. Uh, until proven otherwise, we have to consider it. And then I, you know, I, I saw this other um, abstract in the neuro neurology literature um, talking about um, the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 uh, is capable of, of activating the NLRP3 inflammasome. Um, and that may be, and of course this was looking at that uh, inflammasome activation as the initial step in the development of chronic neurologic diseases. We know the, the NLRP3 inflammasome is also involved in, in inflammation and, and, and immune events. And I think this is one of the reasons why we do see activation of our patients with, it, with their, if they have pre-existing rheumatic disease uh, uh, and they get infected, why they can get worse. Um, or patients who even after their COVID vaccination uh, either have the onset of a rheumatic disease or worsening of the uh, rheumatic disease. I think it is all driven through the inflammasome and that the, so the spike protein is being perceived as a, as a pathogen uh, pattern that drives activation. Uh, an interesting study, National Swedish Hip and Knee OA Register looked at patients who were actually seen face-to-face -face versus digitally online, almost 7,000 patients. Uh, and it turns out that while they both improved um, in their uh, outcomes, the digital patients had larger improvement in pain and function. So those of you who are saying, you know, I don't want to do digital, I don't want to do telemedicine, that's kind of crazy, it's not for me, uh, I want to get back to the old way. You know, there's, there's a growing amount of evidence that says that there are many patients who will do just as well, and in this study, they did better. Now, the question is, was the significant difference in pain and function clinically meaningful? I think we'd have to really look at the data closer to know the answer to that. I think the last big important um, news of the week was the ULAR recommendations for the management of RA with conventional biologic and targeted synthetic um, DMARDs. Um, as you know, this was presented at ULAR 2022 by Dr. Joseph Smolin, who did a fine job uh, walking us through that. They posted up their five overarching principles and 11 recommendations. The highlights of this that are new and something you might want to consider is that they were liberal. Um, unlike the ACR, who are draconian about allowing you or suggesting that you use steroids, ACR guidelines say, don't do it. Please don't do it. And if you have to, get off it. The ULAR guidelines say, sure, go right ahead. If you're going to initiate or change a DMARD, short-term glucocorticoids should be part of the regimen um, and that you should be tapered off and have them discontinue as rapidly as possible. They were, again, much more permissive. I think this is sort of up in lines with what many uh, of us in the United States will actually do. Um, they also said that uh, if patients who have been put on a, you know, a DMARD or whatnot, uh, or a biologic DMARD or targeted synthetic, after the steroids have been discontinued and the patient has sustained remission, they say that you can reduce or space out DMARD therapy, and that includes conventional biologic targeted synthetic, but they do not say that you should stop. So again, reduction is fine, stopping is not. I think that's important. The other thing that they say is that um, patients who you're treating, and if you don't 
achieve your treat the target goal that you should consider adding on a biologic DMARD or a targeted synthetic. They should say you should consider a JAK inhibitor, but only after pertinent risk factors have been taken into account. It sounds fine, but in fact, it's quite permissive and liberal compared to the FDA guidelines that say, no, use a TNF inhibitor first, then a JAK inhibitor. Um, and as you know, the EMA came out with guidelines we talked about last week that they're going to get a little draconian too. So anyway, that's the news from this week. The big news is that we're starting uh, ACR coverage um, today, but really the first day is tomorrow, Saturday. I think what you should, this is my prelude to a meeting um, um, launch, if you will. I think the good news is we're back at a live meeting. This might be the first big meeting for many of you. Uh, I've been back at a number of them, and they've all gone very well. Many people will wear a mask. A lot of people won't wear a mask. That's all well and fine, whatever makes you feel comfortable. The good thing about this meeting is it's going to be very familiar. A lot of the same old things that you're used to seeing, the great debate, curbside consults, you know, um, the year in review, the plenary sessions, etc. A few things that probably are, I think, that you should note. Um, the new thing is that, at, that the posters are kind of out. There's some online posters, but... Having, instead of having 2,000 posters, they're promoting a small subset of posters, about 235, I think, in what's called Ignite Talks. Ignite Talks are poster pre oral poster presentations that are five minutes long, given in rapid succession. If, thus, in an Ignite Talk session, and there's seven of them scattered throughout the three days, they're 55 minutes, five minutes each. That's 11 presentations. Boom, 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 back to back. It's kind of like a cross between a fast-talking auctioneer and a NASCAR race. Jeez, I just hope these people speak English. I think I'm going to be numb after attending one of these uh, sessions. The question is, why? I think the ACR is doing this so that we could avoid, you know, thousands of people milling around and, and having a superseder poster event. I, I think that's the rationale behind this, but... This is like speed dating, learning poster style. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to try it out. I might go poster on this. Uh, we'll see. I'll give you a recap next week. I'm looking forward to a lot of different guidelines being presented this week. Um, no major ones. I think there's a JIA remission guideline, Kawasaki's glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis, the fifth rendition of the vaccination for rheumatic disease patients where we're getting... Um, to consider all the vaccines, not just the COVID story. Um, starting uh, today, Friday, the, the ACR review course, I would suggest that you follow um, Room Now on Twitter because all of our faculty, a number of our faculty are going to the review course and will tweet out basically great pearls that will be delivered by some of our best teachers in rheumatology. It won't be an overwhelming amount of tweets like you're going to have starting tomorrow when the meeting starts. So just the review course, you'll see, I think, really good pearls. You can follow that on Twitter. Saturday is the day, the first day of the meeting. That's tomorrow. Uh, I'm looking forward to the first big session there. I mean, opening business meeting, awards. A lot of great friends like Alan Kivitz are going to get master's awards. Um, and, um, and, the, and then starting at 1130 is the plenary session, which goes on for an hour and a half. That's in Hall A. The Image Competition Awards will start the session. I'm looking forward to presentations from the Mirror Study, use of methotrexate in peglota case in difficult 
gout patients, cancer screening and myositis. I talked about this yesterday in my QD clinic. Um, and a new biologic marker that drives systemic JIA and mass in kids with systemic JIA. That's all happening um, in the first half of the day uh, at the plenary session. The first Ignite session begins at 1 to 155, sessions 1A, 1B, 1C on three different stages. Again, 11 five-minute poster presentations. Again, it's going to be dizzying. Um, Sunday, they're going to have more Ignite sessions in the morning and the afternoon. Um, maybe the hallmark session of the whole meeting is the session that I'm going to be a part of at 1030 Advancing Telemedicine and Rheumatology. That's in room 108. I'm on the program with uh, Swami Ventura Pali, Jeff Curtis, Maria Danilla, Ben Noel, uh, Rebecca Granger. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have a, a one-hour uh, interesting presentation on um, telemedicine and maybe why you should be reconsidering that. The great debate is in the morning. Uh, guidelines for vaccination are going to be at the end of the day on on Sunday. Uh, and then they have a plenary session Dan Bio registry with biosimilar switching. Um, a new, um, uh, I think this is a BTK inhibitor, remibrutinib in Sjogren's syndrome. I'll be interested in that. As you know, I've often said nothing works in Sjogren's syndrome, so I wouldn't invest in it. Um, but we'll see. Maybe this will work out. Antifibrotics and systemic sclerosis. Also on Sunday, there's a great lecture, in the, I think in the morning, the um, Klemper lecture by Fred Wigley on scleroderma. Fred, you know, as you know from Johns Hopkins, is our one of our best speakers, one of our best um, teachers and researchers in scleroderma. That should be a great session as well. The last day is Monday. Uh, curbside consults, late-breaking abstracts, adult thieves markets. I think it's going to be a, a great wrap-up to the meeting. My advice to you, if you're, want, if you're on the go, don't have a lot of time to sit and watch hours and hours, is tune in to our topic panels where our faculty who are focused on one topic like RA or uh, SLE will have a topic panel discussion beginning Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be, um, you can sign up for it. We're, we're sending out invitations for the webinar if you're a rheumatologist. Otherwise, you can go to our website, our Twitter channel, YouTube channel, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're going to live stream at 7 p.m. Eastern starting Sunday, the lupus topic panel, Monday, the RA topic panel, uh, Tuesday, the psoriatic arthritis topic panel, and then Wednesday, spondoarthritis. Earlier, two hours before that, there's going to be daily recaps by the faculty talking about the highlights of each day, 5 p.m., again, on those same channels. A great way to learn is to tune in room, to room now during ACR 22. Hope you're going to enjoy it. Lord knows I will. More to come. This is QD Clinic, ACR 22. Hope you've enjoyed this series leading up to ACR 22. Today's case is a 28-year-old woman who has rheumatoid arthritis and she's pregnant. She was doing very well on a TNF inhibitor, um, taking rarely intermittent non-steroidals or acetaminophen for pain, um, conceived and then stopped her TNF inhibitor. And she's now into her second trimester, and she's not doing well. Um, and it's not pregnancy-related pains and back pain and that sort of thing. This is actually inflammatory arthritis, which has come back off the TNF inhibitor. Of course, this is her first pregnancy. She's not 
wanting to take any medicine. And really, what's your decision at this point? Your decision is to put her on steroids, manage her with non-steroidals, give her useless acetaminophen in this situation, or put her back on the TNF inhibitor, which was working. So what would you do? Well, I'm going to point you to data from uh, ACR 22. This is going to be presented on Sunday the 13th, abstract 0955 from Sabrina Hamroon and colleagues. And they talk about their experience. This is a French cohort of RA patients who get pregnant and they follow them longitudinally. The title of the abstract is Unfavorable Pregnancy Outcomes is Significantly Associated with Corticosteroid Exposure During Pregnancy in Women with RA. The results of a prospective GR2 cohort study. So this is a group of French investigators who started this GR2 registry in 2015. They collected their data up to 2021, uh, and they enrolled women who wanted to get pregnant or were pregnant. They uh, all, all in all, they had I think almost 150 uh, patients. Not all of them were enrolled. I think they had data on almost 100 that they could analyze uh, over time. And um, about half the patients were exposed to steroids, half or 45% exposed to biologics, a few people exposed to NSAIDs during the study. And what were the outcomes? Well, in general, the outcomes were very good, not over 90% live births. So, but that sort of belies the truth, does it not? Because hidden amongst that, you know, is, you know, 10, 15% who had C-sections, very few miscarriages in this study. Usually it's 10, you see 10 to 15%. There was much less in this study. Again, they did very well. 50, uh, of the 90% live births, 50, 60% had favorable outcomes and the others, like 30, 35% had unfavorable outcomes. When they looked at the, the features that were associated with unfavorable outcomes, that would include premature delivery or small for gestational age or uh, miscarriage or what, what, these sort of things. Um, what they saw was, oh, and by the way, you know, not everybody with RA goes into remission during pregnancy. In this study, 22% had high disease activity during the pregnancy, like our patient who She's not doing well. I, she's pretty close to high disease activity by DAS score or CDICE score. What were the things associated with unfavorable outcomes? Being nulliparous, which is a, a what my patient is. Uh, being older, that's not her. And corticosteroid exposure. I want to make the point that multiple studies show that patients who receive corticosteroids in pregnancy don't do very well. Now, that's probably because they have high disease activity. It's probably more disease activity, and the corticosteroids are sort of the surrogate marker for high disease activity, uh, and they just don't do well. But again, if steroids were really effective, that would turn that high disease activity around to low disease activity, and they do well. Who does well during pregnancy? Patients who actually continued on TNF inhibitor as opposed to those who are stopped. Now, that's not part of this study, but other studies have shown that. In this study, when you're exposed to steroids, it wasn't such a good idea. So my suggestion based on this data and other reports is don't be in such a haste to get them off the TNF inhibitors. They're safe during the preg- during pregnancy. Um, the best outcomes are seen in those individuals um, and far better than the outcomes of patients treated with anything else. Think about it. 
Think about following the room now uh, and our coverage of the meeting. Again, it's going to be great real time. Um, lots of tweets, lots of great articles on the website, podcasts and emails every day, videos every day, daily recaps, topic panels, and end at the end of the week and Thursday with Rheumatology Roundup. Follow us on Room Now for great coverage of ACR 22. Enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow reporting from Rum, for Rum Now in live from Philadelphia. I'm super excited to be here. It's the first time I've been uh, to ACR in a couple of years, I've, as basically all of us, um, obviously. So I'm really glad to be here and I have some really, really cool content to share with you today. So um, the first abstract I wanted to talk to you about is um, number 533 from Wilson and colleagues. Um, and it's about um, at-risk individuals for RA. So we know for a fact that um, individuals at risk um, are very likely to develop clinical rheumatoid. However, this can take three to five years for them. Um, and some are at imminent risk and we don't really know how to differentiate um, these patients. So um, what um, the team has done in that work is basically quite interesting. So they've selected patients that were at risk for RA and, and that, that had serum um, anti-CCP antibodies and they looked at um, hypertonic saline-induced sputum and they looked at um, anti-CCP antibodies in their sputum. So basically what was really, really um, interesting was that they separated IgA anti-CCP, IgG anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor IgM. And they looked into how the presence of these antibodies in these patients' sputum was associated to imminent risk of developing RA. And they looked at patients that were going to develop it within 12 months. So um, 60, 66 patients were included in that study and they were able to show that um, the sensitivity of the presence of these antibodies in the sputum uh, was 67% versus only 30% for those who had only serum antibodies. So um, I think this is something that it doesn't seem really hard to implement in clinical practice because we already know how to look into these antibodies. The kits are available, they're not really expensive. So I'm quite, I'm quite excited about the idea that, you know, this could be something that could be implemented, um, of course, after validation of these findings in another prospective cohort. Um, so that was Aurélie Nage, reporting for Rum, for Rum Now. Tune in um, on rumnow.com for more content, and I'll see you around. Hi everyone, back at the ACR 2022 Convergence here in the historical city of Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Janet Pope, or at Janet Burdope, here reporting as a room reporter at Room Now. I'd like to talk about switching from a JAK inhibitor to something else when a patient has rheumatoid arthritis. So these are data from the OPAL database. So this is abstract number 0274. The cool thing about the OPAL database is it's data extracted from the electronic medical records of the rheumatologist in Australia. Most are participating and the patient either says, no, I don't consent or their data can go. So it's a better way of obtaining consent because it's a dissent or you get the data. So they have a large database. And what they have looked at is 5,900 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have been treated with a JAK inhibitor. So what they find, 
All the jacks so far released in Australia have about the same retention. The medium retention is about three years. Um, they also found that 30% uh, or one in three patients go from a jack, an RA, to another jack. What they find when they switch, they found like all the other drugs when we switch within class that they can be helpful, but a little bit less retention and a little bit less of a high DAS uh, response. So you can go jack to jack, you can get a good retention, you can get a good response, but your first is uh, the best. And that's true with the other uh, um, TNFs and everything as well. What is my take home though? My take home message is I think we need randomized controlled trials that say, if you're using first line jack as an advanced therapy, should we randomize patients to jack to jack or jack to other MOA? And then we'd really get the answer on the best durability and the best deep response uh, is within class or outside of class or any of the above. So I hope you look forward to other reports from me and have a great day. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Julian Segan from Melbourne, Australia. I'm reporting to you from Room Now. Uh, we're at the ACR Convergence in 2022 in sunny Philadelphia. So I'm here with Dr. Brian England. Uh, I wanted to interview uh, Brian about uh, his abstract 0245, the influence of forced vital capacity, impairment on treatment selection and outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease in patients initiating a biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD. Thank you for coming on, uh, Dr. England. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here, back in person. Very exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so could you tell us a bit about the, uh, the main findings of the abstract? Yeah, so, you know, the abstract really gets us this idea of how should we manage patients with rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. It's a very challenging population, as you're well aware of, to take care of. We don't have a lot of data to guide us. And so really the premise behind the abstract is, is, is one of the reasons that we don't have a lot of data because we don't know which therapies to choose, you know, which of our immunomodulatory therapies might be best for these patients. And we really wanted to try and get at the question of, well, what's driving both the choice of which therapy we should give these patients, as well as what's driving the outcomes after these patients receive advanced immunomodulatory therapies. So utilizing uh, national VA data over a large period of time, we looked at what the predictors were of either receiving a non-TNF or JAK inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor in people who have RAILD. Then we looked at what the outcomes were afterwards, what things predicted whether they were in the hospital, what things predicted whether they ended up dying over those few years after initiating that therapy. And the key thing that we really wanted to look at that studies haven't looked at such so far is the severity of their ILD. And we know a great surrogate marker of their ILD severity is their force vital capacity. And so we extracted force vital capacity measurements out of the electronic health record. Uh, some of it was available, some of it we had to use natural language processing to extract out. And what we found was that the force vital capacity, as we might expect, is highly predictive of their outcomes. It predicted people going to the hospital for a respiratory complaint. It predicted people dying after they'd initiated an advanced therapy. But what was a little bit surprising was the force vital capacity severity was not a strong predictor of which therapy people were getting. And I think that's a little bit eye-opening to this idea that what we clearly know that how severe your ILD is is going to impact whether or not you live or die. But we still don't know whether or not that means we should treat you differently. So there's clearly a lot of work to be done to figure out how to best treat these patients. So why do you think that severity of the ILD didn't predict uh, the treatment choices? Is it the fact that we don't know how to treat this disease? Is it, is it, are there other factors like uh, availability of certain medications with insurance coverage? Yeah, I think it's both. I think absolutely it's both. You know, we don't have any clinical trial data of our immunomodulatory therapies and RAILD. 
And so that's a, that's a huge gap that we need to solve going forward. But the other piece is exactly that. You know, so when we don't have that data, what drives our treatment decisions, the things we have. So when we looked at our data, it was, yeah, more current time periods where we had more options, we were more likely to go to a non-TNF or a JAK. You know, if people had had, you know, numerous prior biologic therapies, they were more likely to end up on a non-TNF. Kind of, you know, the severity of their RA, their articular disease, pushed people that way. So, um, I guess one of the questions I had based on the mortality and the outcome data was, uh, do you think that the treatment actually influenced some of the respiratory-related hospitalizations and some of the mortality, or do you think that that was, uh, that was independent or even perhaps protective, like some of the methotrexate data? Yes. I think all of those above. That's a great question, right? Yeah. You know, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, we know there are some complications that can happen. You know, every therapy has been implicated for drug-induced pneumonitis. We know these are immunomodulatory therapies. And what's the big infection we worry about in people with RAILD? What's pneumonia, right? Someone gets a pneumonia who's already got severe parenchymal damage in their lungs. It can be devastating. So I think there's definitely the potential for badness with these therapies. Now, whether or not there's benefit from them, that remains to be determined. As we both have talked before, you know, there's a lot of uncontrolled studies that suggest you know, the vast majority of people with RALD who initiate these advanced therapies are either stable or maybe even have a little bit of improvement. But what's lacking is that comparative data. You know? What's lacking is accounting for how severe their articular disease is, how severe their interstitial lung disease is. If we compare these therapies, which therapies are patients going to do better with? You know? And we don't have that clinical trial data. We don't even have that comparative observational data for the most part. Yeah, so that leads me on to really the elephant in the room. How do we get that data? We, I think it's probably unlikely that we're going to have big phase three trials. So how do we get the data to actually answer those questions? Well, I think that's where we have to look at the real world, right? What's happening in the real world? Have we treated enough people with these therapies in the real world that we can now look back and, you know, use pharmacoepidemiologic principles and study designs to try and tease that apart. And this study is really a first step towards doing that. First step is understanding what's driving treatment selection, what's driving treatment outcomes. And now that we know that information, you know, let's simulate a randomized controlled trial with real-world data. Yeah. And a final question. My colleagues at home would probably kill me if I didn't ask one of the experts. What are your go-to drugs based on your clinical experience or even some of the, the, um, the low levels of data? What are your go-to therapies for RAILD? Well, it depends. You know, I would say that, you know, there's not one that is so good that blanket for all RAILD patients I'd head this way. The first step is really taking a detailed assessment of what is this person's RAILD, right? It's not just their lungs. These people have articular disease. And so it's, it's doing a full assessment of what is the systemic nature of their disease, what organs are being involved, uh, how is it impacting their quality of life and what they want to function, and from that kind of tailoring you know, the medication selection. Um, you know, oftentimes for people who are on conventional therapies, you know, azathioprine is a reasonable option to consider. Uh, for people who are, you know, requiring biologic therapies, uh, you know, certainly we use plenty of uh, rituximab, rabitacept, um, but it really just, it's patient by patient at this point, and there's no data to drive it. It's all experience. So to all the people at home, I'm sorry that we don't have a better answer, but hopefully Dr. England will come up with a, with a better answer with more time and more data. So I just want to thank Dr. England again for his time and expertise. Uh, really interesting uh, and, uh, topic and uh, very amazing abstracts. Uh, so thank you for your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I'm Julian Segan for, for Room Now, and uh, join us uh, for more coverage of the ACR 2022 in Philadelphia.